New Zealand society is getting increasingly diverse with the latest census indicating more than a quarter of the population was born overseas. But for some communities, that transition to New Zealand life is more challenging than for others, and sometimes cultures sanction activities outlawed in this country. This insight joins forces with Radio New Zealand's Voices programme to explore efforts to counter culturally motivated crime. A warning that some issues discussed in this programme could be disturbing. The 2013 census revealed that New Zealand is now home to more ethnicities than there are countries in the world. In total, there are 213 ethnic groups. That diversity is for the most part celebrated and embraced, but some communities bring with them cultural norms, such as forced and underage marriage and female genital mutilation, that are at odds with not only laws in this country, but international conventions. An advocate for women's rights, Pollyanne Piana, says the notion of ethnically motivated crime suggests that nothing can be done. It is the idea that a culturally motivated crime is sanctioned somehow by the communities that perpetrate these crimes and that it's, it's normal for that to occur in those communities so there shouldn't be any intervention or any way of like preventing it or stopping it. But the Police National Strategic Ethnic Advisor, Inspector Rakesh Naidu, says while violence and abuse can erupt in families from every part of New Zealand society, it is not acceptable to use culture to excuse some practices. We look at it as a human rights issue, and it's irrespective of whatever one's beliefs may be. We, we have human rights legislation in New Zealand, and we will function within that. I'm Linda Tanwai Earl, and this insight investigates whether education and awareness needs to be backed up with more specific legislation. Shakti is an organisation that provides support services for women, children and families of Asian, African and Middle Eastern origin. The centre coordinator for Shakti in Wellington, Pollyanne Piena, says many people have no idea the sort of treatment some women and children face in other countries is also going on here. These culturally sanctioned crimes are happening within a New Zealand context. In um, New Zealand yeah, as well. Yeah, in New Zealand. So it's that people are bringing their, um, their own cultures, their own uh, religions, their ideologies here, um, and that... This should be a country where that's not okay. We've built so many campaigns around this idea that no violence at all is ever acceptable in New Zealand and that if you need help, ask for it. And it's not okay. It's not okay to uh, perpetrate violence, especially domestic violence or child abuse. Um, But because people have come here from other places and they're bringing all of that sort of baggage with them, um, sometimes the message either doesn't translate or that people within these communities, I guess, have like a willful ignorance of these sorts of messages. And they say, well, this is our community, and we sort of dictate how that looks and how things are run. Pollyanne Piena doesn't believe that any religion or culture justifies violence and abuse. For me, I don't think that beating women uh, to an inch of her life, abusing her financially, um, isolating her from the community as part of anyone's culture, and I think that's a real cop-out for people to say it's sort of a culturally sanctioned sort of violence because I don't think anybody's culture is, is that 
bad or that mean or that cruel. And people say, well, you know, in certain texts or whatever it is in our religion and our ideology, um, the woman is here to perform a certain role or function or whatever it is, and that's fine, and it's the same for every single type of society or culture. But I don't think in any of these texts or ideologies it says and because women play a certain role or because we have certain expectations of women and men, that you can perpetrate violence against them. Inspector Rakesh Naidu, a National Strategic Ethnic Advisor with the police, believes family violence often springs from frustrations felt by men, especially if they're struggling with the transition to a life in a new place. He wants there to be opportunities where difficult matters that could be seen as shameful can be discussed before they boil over into a physical response. The sense of self-worth should not be defined by social standing in the car you drive and how much money you earn and, and all these external factors. And that there needs to be a much wider, wider conversation around this to ensure that people are quite uh, comfortable in terms of what, what roles they're playing in society and uh, who their daughters and sons are going to marry and how big the wedding should be or how small they should be or how big my house should be or how small it should be. This should not be the sense of, uh, not be the sole uh, gauge by which one is deemed to be successful or deemed to have a status here because that's what New Zealand, that's not what New Zealand is all about. New Zealand places a high value on personal happiness and the ability of the underdog to be to be anything that you want to be, to have a voice no matter in what, uh, whether you're the richest or whether you're the poorest, you have access to services that you can speak to people. When things do go wrong, Inspector Naidu says it's important that communities offer help and support rather than turn their backs. The wider community needs to embrace them and support them rather than blacklist them and say oh you know that that family has problems we shouldn't engage with them or you know there's something wrong with them and make them feel shunned and feel ashamed and the gossiping starts that's what continues the cycle of the silence of the shame and the violence and the violence and I think that if we're able to address that shame and people can understand that it's not just them that it affects, but there's others that are under the same situation. He says without exception, his experience is that community leaders are very supportive. Inspector Bridget Nimmo specialises in the area of family violence. I've been in the role since the beginning of 2010, so during that time part of my work has been working on issues relating to our ethnic communities and forced and underage marriage is probably the, the most prevalent issue that I've, that I've dealt with in my time in this role. Although not reflected in prosecutions before the courts, she says forced and underage marriage is happening to girls and young women living here. Inspector Nimmo describes the cultural practice as an extremely covert form of family violence that is often supported by the community. She says in many cases girls or young women are taken overseas to marry someone of the family's choosing and only return to New Zealand once they're 16. But Inspector Nimmo says it can also happen here. We know also people are sponsored into New Zealand and what we call customary marriages take place in New Zealand. So in New Zealand it's illegal to unlawfully register a marriage. So what happens is a customary marriage can take place within the community and it's not registered in New Zealand but for all intents and purposes that is a marriage. Shakti's Pollyann Piena says under British law 
underage and or forced marriage is an offence. It's acknowledged as a crime there, which is not in New Zealand. And it's not that people don't think it's a crime, but it's not in the Crimes Act. There's nothing here in New Zealand that says that is illegal, and so here are some penalties and sanctions for people who engage in these practices. And I know that they do do a lot of interagency work so that people know that it, it isn't right. There's some really good programs happening in schools so that it's starting from a younger age that you know actually... It's not okay to be married off at 14. And someone who's more likely than not much, much, much older than you. The UK is always used as a really, really good example of sort of how to do components of that right. But I think the first step is actually acknowledging in New Zealand that it is a crime and that it happens here. While having sex with a girl under 16 would be classed as statutory rape, the situation gets more difficult when a person turns 16. At that age, a young person is allowed to marry with their parents' permission. In the case of a forced marriage, it's the parents exerting pressure for this to happen. Inspector Nemo says in many communities the practice of organised marriage at a young age endures. But there are some um, community leaders who believe in the practice and, and would support it. Um, so therein is, is a real challenge for the woman in particular in those communities to um, to bring this issue out and, and, to, and to be open. I think a good way of looking at it is, is looking at it as a human rights issue um, and yes. for, for women um, and, and trying to take the opportunities we have to go into these communities to talk to them. I think the main thing is um, putting in place options for young people who are in this situation because realistically when they approach someone for advice they're looking at how can they survive if they leave their family and leave their community when you're in your early teens. It's a huge prospect, a hugely daunting prospect for anybody. She says police can unwittingly become agents of the parents when adults report that young people have gone missing, when in effect they're trying to escape a forced marriage. A youth advocate at Shakti in Auckland, Malalai Sadat, wants more support for young women and a justice system that clearly spells out that underage and forced marriage is unacceptable in this country. Despite moving to a new country, she says many young women feel their options remain unchanged. Those young girls who are in forced marriage cases, they're often going through a lot of abuse, but when they don't see a way, they normally, most of the time, they attempt to self-harm. So they are trying to um, um, they attempt suicide. Thoughts they do most of the time, they, many of them, that they will have um, done so many um, self-harm. And also um, because myself, I'm from Afghanistan, and um, especially Afghanistan, it's about 80% are forced marriage cases. And because there is no law, there is no girl, these ladies are not educated, there's no, and the only, only way they choose to get out of the abuse relationship is to suicide or they burn themselves. So unfortunately that my message is if those, not just from that specific thing, but if they are coming to New Zealand when there is law, there is uh, justice, you know, why they are still going through that because they feel like there is no support for them. Inspector Nimmo says strict expectations of behaviour within some communities, partnered with a common desire across society to keep family matters quiet, can mean nothing is known until something devastating happens. There are some honour killing, and we know that there are some, sometimes, um, that there can be um, culturally related reasons behind a death. 
Um, but that, like that you make say, it distinct they'd from, make it distinct yeah. from. And I think yeah. part of that is is the um, for your so you know strong belief about um, the the structure and the family and how it operates. Women potentially bringing shame on their family, and the and the shame is brought on the family. There's a responsibility of the family to punish the woman for doing that. And so we do know that that sort of crime does exist, and it is a distinct type of family violence. But like you say, family violence and serious family violence occurs across all parts of society and all different ethnic groups. But the scope of culturally sanctioned crime stretches beyond family violence and forced marriage to more specific areas such as female genital mutilation, or FGM. Those involved in work to end the practice in this country divide FGM into three categories of severity, type 1 being a relatively small cut or removal of tissue, through to type 3, which involves extensive removal of tissue and stitching up to close much of the genital area. Sharina Shahrin is a Muslim Malaysian woman studying for a PhD at Victoria University's School of Education. She underwent a type 1 procedure when she was only young. For her, it was a family tradition. My grandmother, she's an immigrant from Indonesia, so she brings with her this Indonesian culture. And so in Islam, what I expected is the men, the male is compulsory, but not for the female. So this is heavily culturally embedded practice and it was expected uh, of my mum to do it to her daughter. So at the age of five I was taken to my grandma's place and it happened very quickly and I guess I was too young to really understand what happened. All I knew is that it I have to I have to do this because that's what my mum wants me to do and what's what my grandma wants me to do. It came as a shock to find the practice was illegal in New Zealand and prompted her to ask her mother why the cutting had been done. She was quite surprised with me asking questions. She was like, why do you want to know? And I said, well, apparently people are quite intrigued by this. And, and that's when, it, when she explained it in a matter-of-factly of how she mm-hmm. understood it. And to, be, to be made aware of what something that I'm accustomed to, apparently what's normal to me, not normal for everybody. So yeah, it's a yes. learning process for me. Sharina Sharin says in her case the FGM was justified on health grounds as well as family tradition. Education has been the number one tool in countering some of the arguments put forward to support FGM. Those working in this area have developed their own resource kit. The development of it began right in the early or mid-1990s when FGM became... I guess on the radar, particularly in the area of public health in New Zealand, because we had a huge number of women who'd undergone FGM coming through New Zealand Public Health Services. So I think in our, I was managing the maternity community services at the time, and I think we had 36 women through in one year that had all undergone FGM. And to, um, to our horror, really, the women were getting appalling care in New Zealand. No one knew how to care for them. No one knew how to deliver when they you know, had babies, how to care for them at all. So and FGM educator Nikki Denham started working at the Ministry of Health and after some research established that very little was known about how to care for these women who had undergone this culturally motivated cutting. She also discovered that many women continued to support the practice. And there were also issues, many of the women that arrived in New Zealand also were keen to continue practising FGM. They, they wished for their, for their children, at the time they'd come from a culture that practised FGM. Mm. 
A gynaecologist and obstetrician at Wellington Hospital, Rose Elder, sees women once or twice a year who have had FGM, but says colleagues treat others. Most of those who come into the clinics are women who have experienced the most severe form of female genital mutilation, type 3, and who are now pregnant. Dr Elder says while the cultural practice causes extensive damage and leaves scarring both physically and mentally, it is possible to reverse some of what has been done. But often that in itself has an effect. A lot of the time it actually is quite straightforward to, surgically it's not that complicated to correct or to, um, to deal with, but a lot of it is the communication and dealing sensitively with these women about um, what they can expect and also ensuring that they understand that we can't um, rejoin what, is, what has been sewn up centrally, um, that it's illegal in New Zealand to do that. So kind of preparing them a little bit for what to expect when you do reverse it, and, and also what's, what, we're, what we do for treatment for afterwards and how it will be a little bit different. You know, Even the simple things of how to pass, passing urine might sound very different in the toilet because the flow is much better. Um, so those small things and what their expectation is, is often, they're often quite scared about how it will change them to have it reversed. You know, these people come often from communities that have feelings about FGM that may mean that they're viewed somewhat what differently if that has been reversed. You can't assume that everybody will be happy for you to do this, or, and certainly many are quite nervous and scared. And I think a lot of them that we see in clinic, you know, actually them getting to clinic has been a major step for them, and even just talking about it, let alone examining them or doing the procedure. Dr Elder says she can see no health justification for even the most limited form of FGM. But many see a cultural contradiction in talk about strengthening legislation against FGM while in the West men are circumcised and women are allowed to get any part of their body pierced if they want to. For FGM educator Nikki Denham, there are important differences that separate these practices and the primary one is consent. For example, a parent taking a two-year-old child and performing a... Um, you know, putting a, a clitoral ring in would would not be considered, you know, appropriate or acceptable in New Zealand because the child has no consent. The uh, the second issue is is just regarding the whole definition of what is incision. Is incision a small prick or is it a full, big... Excising. Well, is it a really big incision? Because mm. if you're using the analogy of uh, piercing, if it's a very, very big incision, you may actually damage the tissue, which on a young, growing child, when the genital region is still, is still developing, could cause long-term you know, serious harm. So there are those two issues which, I guess, define it as different. On saying that, though... I think it's important for us to to understand that perspective because I think we, we're very quick to jump to being quite judgmental about FGM. You know, piercing is done for cultural reasons. Breast implanting is done for cultural uh, you know, reasons because we're in a society that says this is cool and it's beautiful and you know important to look like that. So it gives us a little bit of an understanding of FGM being performed for cultural reasons. Nikki Denham supports clarification of the legislation so that not just cutting away, but cutting into, is illegal. We have had some issues within the communities, in fact wider communities that practice FGM, where in fact there has been incision to the clitoris. When we speak with the community and you talk about incision, it's often termed sooner. For some women it means full removal, for others it just means a pricking or a piercing. 
But within the current definition of FGM, it's in a sense, incision is legal. And so if word was to get out in the community, they would say that SUNA is legal. And so some members of the community may in fact practice full removal because in their understanding this sort of type one that covers anything from incision to full excision is actually okay. So basically the law is, as it currently stands, the definition is very ambiguous and it could lead to people within the communities believing that, that type one is actually acceptable and, and therefore could occur underground. A Somalian community leader based in Auckland, Mahad Warasami, has been working with the FGM Education Project for more than a decade. He describes every ethnic grouping having good and bad cultures, and he acknowledges FGM as a bad part of Somalian culture. But he says the work done within the community means the practice is no longer important in New Zealand, although the tradition in Somalia is for the most extensive type 2 and 3 forms of FGM. And Somali culture was in back home. It was one of the type three of FGM, one of the tough one. That and that's what we practice in Somalia. And but now, when I see the community people, mothers, and especially this culture, always mothers and grandmothers are the one who uphold their daughters. They feel it's uh, safe for their future marriage and things like that. But it's not. <laughs> it's not helping for men, or it's not helping for anyone. Uh, it's not healthy for the girl. It's not health, healthy for the you know when, when you're married. It's not helping anyone. It's only, I think it's a it's a bad attitude. People believe is. For Inspector Rakesh Naidu, the Police National Strategic Ethnic Advisor, it's vital that FGM education efforts are owned and driven by the community. The educators speak the language. They are from that community. They. Um, they are women talking with women, and in this way, and, and the workshops and education is largely done in the homes. So it's familiar settings, it's something that is done um, where the conversation can be had in a safe environment. It's something that is, has been developed by the community for them. And the people involved in the education program have been very deliberate and conscientious in ensuring that it's not something where the community is seen as they are being targeted or they are being shamed, but rather that it's a positive conversation about what is going to happen to you as a, uh, as a, as a resident in New Zealand, why, why does um, FGM take place, and, and what is it that we need to, to ensure that it doesn't happen in New Zealand. But those working at the community level are not the only ones who believe there is a need for change in the justice system to support all the awareness and education already going on around culturally sanctioned crimes. Judge Ajit Swaran Singh sits in the Auckland District Court and previously heard cases in Manukau. He says assessing the situation through data around cases heard is problematic. For example, he's not aware of criminal cases in relation to forced unions, but says there have been several in the family court to annul marriages on the grounds that one party had not consented or they were coerced by parents on one side or the other. Judge Singh says he believes the issue is much more widespread and underreported. He supports the idea of New Zealand following the lead taken by legislation in the UK. In the case of FGM, Judge Singh says further clarification would be helpful. I think the present FGM law in New Zealand is 
a mirror image of the UK law. What we do need to look at is the definition and in particular we need to get views of the communities in which FGM is being practiced to see if there are any loopholes that they can see whereby people can evade or avoid prosecution for FGM. When it comes to forced marriage, he says more needs to be done to offer protection. We do have forced marriage uh, provisions in respect of abduction of a child when a child is held against his or her will so that they can be married to somebody without their consent. England has a provision where protection orders for forced marriages can be made. We have protection orders in New Zealand where a person may be protected, both child or children and the spouse that is being threatened or being assaulted and any breach of protection order can attract a term of imprisonment. Judge Singh is keen to look at measures that have been adopted in Britain. England has a provision where protection orders can be made to protect a child or a woman if he or she is forced into marriage then there would be a breach of the order which I understand could possibly attract a term of imprisonment. We do not have that specific provision. There is no protection order specifically for forced marriage to protect the victim. An FGM educator in the Somalian community, Ayan Saeed, supports following the UK lead, but says it's also a matter of fulfilling international obligations. I think the current legislation should be changed and sort of align um, with the international standards. If we are signing all to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and all these other instruments that the international community is assigned to, then I think we should be aligned with that. In reply to queries about these issues, the Office of Ethnic Affairs said it helped to raise awareness within communities about New Zealand's legislation and services aimed at preventing family violence, but no one was able to discuss the matter further. However, the newly appointed Minister of Ethnic Affairs, Peseta Sam Lotto Ienga, was happy to speak about protecting those that are vulnerable. He says those at risk should be receiving the same level of support and protection no matter what community they come from. He stressed the importance of having representatives of different communities recruited into various agencies, be it the police or social services. Peseta Sam Lotto Ienga said while understanding the difficulties involved in adapting to a new country, everyone must comply equally with the law. I will, as the Minister for Ethnic Communities, look at the, those differences and um, listen to and, and you know, see whether there you know, can be things that we can do um, under legislation um, or may, maybe it could incorporate some you know, better education around um, adjusting to a new country, better integration around those things. Although he supports some legislative changes, Judge Singh says it is vital to have community leaders as part of the team to address culturally sanctioned crime. And that message is backed up by Mahad Warsami, who says while the law is important, nothing is as strong as communities themselves wanting change. That debate happening in the community was more powerful than anything else. The legal, the law from the parliament, anything that this, although it was helpful when you say if you do, this is a criminal in New Zealand. It's, it's real helpful. But when the community start discussion and say, 
What's, what's the interest? Why are we doing this? I'm Linda Tanwai-Earl, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send a tweet to rnz underscore insight. This programme was produced by Philip Atolli with technical production by William Saunders.